Uh, the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is a modern day classic. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there. All right, hands up if you've seen it. All right, shame on the rest of you. I can still remember seeing it as a little boy. Uh, I can still remember being terrified. I was never very brave. Uh, if you haven't seen it, let me tell you the story. Basically, it's the story of a race. Uh, a race between our hero, Indiana Jones, and the dreadful, dreaded Nazis. Uh, a race to find the ancient Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. You see, the Nazis want it uh, because they believe it has magical, mystical powers. And, and owning it will make their armies invincible. And our hero, our boy Jones, wants to stop them because he believes the same thing. Uh, and over the course of the film, the, the Ark changes hands again and again, and there are, and there are fist fights and, and kind of shootouts and, and thrilling adventures in torch-lit caves, until finally, toward the end of the movie, the Nazis capture Indy. <gasps> well, next time you can join me. And they capture the girl. <gasps> okay, that's much better. And they capture the Ark. <laughs> All right, don't do that anymore. Uh, and they open the lid and release its awesome power. But as it often does in movies like this, what they hope will be their greatest moment of victory turns out to be their downfall. You see, rather than gaining an invincible weapon, what actually happens in the movie is, and I, I watched it again on YouTube just to make sure, uh, they instead release the wrath of God. Out of the box comes this kind of, I guess, flock of face-melting death angels. Uh, who guys like this are not too pleased about. Uh, and you wouldn't be either if you get to see the film. And what happens is these angels, uh, they wipe out the Nazis. Every single one of them. Uh, but not Indy and his girl. Somehow they're safe. After all, they have their eyes closed in the corner and that always works. Uh, it works for me as an eight-year-old watching at this moment. Uh, and the goodies win. And the baddies lose. And the movie ends. But the reason I tell you about it is, is because as different as Indy and the Nazis are, they both have one very important thing in common. And actually, it's the thing that drives the whole movie. What's that? It's that they both think that God can be kept in a box and his power harnessed. They both think God can be kept and contained to be used by us, can be kind of held on a leash to serve our cause. As we come to 1 Samuel again today, and in particular these chapters, chapters actually 4 to 6, the question we ask is, were they right? Is that how God works? Does he exist to serve us? Can his power be harnessed and be used by us? Now, and on the one hand, of course, I want to say, and I can see it in your faces, we hear that story and we watch that movie, and especially pre-CGI, can I say, so 1981, and the answer is obvious. It's obviously no. That's not how it works. That's not how God works. I mean, it's all so silly. And yet, as we come to Samuel again today, I think we are forced to think again. Especially as Christians. In real life. Day to day. Here on campus. Back at home. Is that how we think of God? 
Is that how we treat God? As if God can be kept and used when we want, for what we want. When exam times come, then it's time to call on God. When the car park's rare, then it's time to call on God. When the health starts to fail, then it's time to call on God. When the love life fails, then it's time to call on God. After all, that's what he's here for, right? I mean, I'm what he's here for, right? Well, that's what these chapters will challenge us about tonight, so let's get to it. We're going to overview the story very quickly. We join the story this week, and the first thing we find is that the battle lines are drawn. Now, if you were here with us last week, you remember Samuel. Well, by now, Samuel's grown. That boy who came in answer to prayer, that the boy God chose to speak to Israel, he has grown. But strangely, as we come to the start of 1 Samuel 4, he's missing. The mouthpiece of God is missing. The one God was using to tell his people who he is and what he wanted, he's missing. And the battle lines are drawn. And we're not told why, or if like who provoked who, but we are told, verse 1, it's the Philistines versus Israel. And what happens? Well, verse 2, battle 1, the Philistines win. And 4,000 Israelites die. And the Israelites are confused and they ask the question there in verse 3. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? See, I don't know about you, but I want to say that's an excellent question. And that would be one well worth waiting for an answer for. But, as it turns out, they don't. They don't wait. In fact, they don't even ask their question to their God. Did you notice there in verse 3? Instead, they, they ask it to each other. And then they answer it to each other without ever consulting Samuel, without ever consulting God. They decide what they need. And what's that? It's for God to do what he's supposed to do. In other words... Is for God to do what they want him to do. So what do they do? Well, they go fetch God. They fetch the ark, the, the, the throne of God. That thing which God promised way back in Exodus 25, and on that wonderful video we saw right at the very start, and you see it echoed here in chapter 4, verse 4, I will meet you there above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, over the ark of the testimony. That's where God was to meet his people. That was the throne of God. And so that's where they go get it. And they bring it into the battle. And once it's there, what do they say? They say, go. Fight. Save. We've got three wishes for you, genie. Go, fight, save. But tragically, see in the verses God apparently refuses and in fact rather than beat the Philistines the presence of the ark only serves to embolden them and they say there verse 9 be strong Philistines be men or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you be men and fight 
and that's what they do. And this time, instead of 4,000, Israel lose 30,000, and the Ark of God is captured. And then, as we see in our second reading, the Ark of God is taken to the temple of the Philistine God. Chapter 5, verse 2. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. And by the way, here's what he looked like, apparently. A carving uh, kept in the British Museum with his sweet ass hat there. <laughs> and perhaps for the Philistines, the ark was like a trophy. You know, like that, that ribbon you got for coming ninth in the school cross country and it's now standing proud over your desk. That, that forever reminder of your victory won. Or, or perhaps it was more like a new recruit. And actually, this is the one I'm, I'm wondering about. Perhaps it was simply now, you work for us. And so they said to the ark, here's the temple. Here is Dagon. He's your boss. You work for us. But if that's what they thought, they couldn't be more wrong, could they? Chapter 5, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord almost as if he was bowing down before him, the one true God. But the Philistines don't know that yet. And so very pathetically and kind of comically, they, they pick up their God and they dust him off and they, they set him back up again in his place. But then verse 4, the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And, and worse still, as if to prove the point, you read on in the verse, his, his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. And then verse 6, the Lord's hand is heavy against them. And the plague comes. And tumours come. And by now the Philistines get it. And they say there, verse 7, did you see? The ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us. His hand is heavy on us and, and on Dagon, our God. And so for the rest of the chapter, and in fact the next one too, it's all about them trying to get rid of this ark of God, this spoil of war. And in some ways it's like some silly game of hot potato. You know, where the aim of the game is don't get caught with a potato in your hand. You know, don't get caught or you're gonna get burnt. And in our story, that's what happens. Everywhere the ark goes, death goes with it. And so finally in chapter 6, really not knowing what to do, if you get to read on later, what you'll see is the Philistines send the ark back to Israel with gold rats and gold tumors strapped to the side just in case that pleases God. And what do the Israelites do? They rejoice. Our ark is back. Our God is back. But very quickly that joy is turned to mourning since by the end of the chapter, what do we read? Chapter 6, verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. That, that is the Israelite inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death. Why? Because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. 
And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And of course, that's the question. See, that's the question you're supposed to ask once you get through these chapters. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can face his awesome power? Who can match his mighty rule? Who can keep him or contain him or control him? Who does he bow to? Who does he serve? And the answer? The answer is, not you. If you're a note taker, you might like to write that one down. Not you. See, that's what the Israelites were supposed to learn. That's what the Philistines were supposed to learn. That's what we are supposed to learn. Not you. Whether you are not God's people or whether you are God's people, the answer remains the same. It's not you. So let me say, if you're here tonight and you're not God's people and you don't live for Jesus and this isn't your God, first of all, we're really glad you're here. You're so welcome. Please do come again. And second, and even more importantly, from this word of God, do not think even for a second that you can beat this God or ignore this God or avoid this God or push him down or box him in or line him up like he's just another possible power. He's not. And you can't. Even if for a while it seems you can. Just as for the Philistines, for a while it seemed they could. What happened to them will happen to you. Only much, much worse. See, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Not you. And, if you're here tonight and you are God's people, if you do live for Jesus, if this is your God, then I want to say from this word of God, it's the same message for us. In fact, that's the why this way that's why the story is told the way it is. So I wonder if you can imagine for yourself yourself an Israelite and you're reading this story. Okay, I don't know what you need to do to make yourself feel Israeli, but do that right now. And imagine yourself reading this story. And you get to chapter five with this silly Dagon God. And you get to chapter five with this crazy ark hot potato. And everyone's falling over and everyone's going down. And it's like some old slapstick comedy where you're just waiting for the next hit so you can roll around and have a little giggle. And if it wasn't so tragic, you hardly keep a straight face. It's all so laughable. And so because you're an Israelite, that's what you do. You laugh at how silly this is. <laughs> Until that is, you remember chapter 4. Or until it is, you read on to chapter 6. And you see, and what you see in them, those Philistines, you also see in yourself. And so you stop laughing. 
and you think to yourself, hey, wait a minute, that's us. That's me. That's what I did. That's what I do. I treat God like he's only there for me to fight my battles, to do my bidding. I act like I can control him. Like like some genie who I rub. There's a genie, if you're familiar to any of you. And I, give me three wishes. Or how did the song go? Yes, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah. Say, what's your wish? It's yours, true dish. How about a little more baklava? <laughs> I don't know about you. But I think, oh my goodness, that's how I treat God. Maybe not so much the baklava, but, but all the rest. So often that's me. And when it is, that's wrong. Even if, and especially if, you are one of God's people. Here's what I think is the bottom line of these chapters. And, and I'm sorry if this is new. This might sting a little bit. Here's the bottom line. God's not here to simply serve you. You are here to simply serve Him. Put it another way. He is the God. You are the not. He is the ruler. You are the ruled. God's not here to simply serve you. You are here to simply serve him. You see, in a book that's all about leadership, it seems to me that the big idea of these three chapters is that God is the leader. And so no matter what happens next in this story or even in our story, that remains forever true. It's just as Hannah sang last week, you remember? Nothing compares to you, or nothing compares <laughs> to you. He alone is truly God. He alone is truly God. Friends, I want to say we really need to get this. Why? Well, I want to just say it's just, just two reasons. The first is simply because it's true. No matter how hard it is for us to believe, no matter how much our world says different, no matter how much you and I are coached from birth to be the boss of me, I have a penny for every time I heard one of my kids, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> now, the masters of your fate, the captains of your soul, friends, we are not. He alone is. And if we don't get that, we will always have this Indiana approach to God. We'll always try to box him and contain him and use him. But if we do, it will only ever end in tears. With our bubble burst and our heart broken and maybe even worse. You know, later in the New Testament, Paul will write, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen and can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. See, that's our God. And he is not ours to use or control or demand of. 
He is not there to simply make our life better. So the first reason we need to know it is simply because it's true. The second reason is because if you don't know this, you won't be able to appreciate what happens next in this story. And indeed, in our story. You see, in this story, the people are about to reject this God. As if they have a a right to vote for King. And you'll never realise how stupid that is unless you see these chapters. But even more than that, you'll never really appreciate just how wonderful and gracious is God's response to them. You see, in response to their rejection of him, their rightful ruler, well established, chapters 4 to 6, instead of wiping them out as he could, as he should, chapters 4 to 6, God will patiently and lovingly serve them. He'll give them the king they want, and then he'll give them the king they need to bring them back to him. That's their story. So much better in our story, isn't it? Multiply that by about a million, and that's what God has done for us. Despite our rejection, as if we could vote for King, in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, in the most profound way he possibly could, at the greatest cost he possibly could. Even though God's not there to simply serve you, you are there to simply serve Him. That's what God did. He served you like you've never been served before. And He saved you like you've never been saved before. Why? So you could and would serve Him like you should. One songwriter put it once. How many kings step down from their throne? How many lords abandon their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? The answer I take it is none except for this one. And so just as one Samuel calls you to do, serve this one. And can I say, especially now, as you're setting the course for the rest of your life, resolve now not to just take God and keep God and use God to serve your ends. Don't just want what the rest of the world wants and use God to try and get it. Don't just want the job and want the spouse and want the house and want the life that everyone else has. And worse still, don't simply demand that God has to give it. After all, that's what I want and you're my God. Give it. So that's the best he has to offer. Friends, can I say, even now resolve to live for more than that. Live for Him. Find out what He wants from His Word. Chase after that. 
Don't settle for this Indiana approach to God. But instead, know this one and love this one who loves you and has served you more than anyone else can or will. Let me pray about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable passage in the Bible where we see so clearly that of themselves no one can stand before you. No one. And Father, we see so clearly that you don't exist to serve us. We exist to serve you. And yet, as we follow through to the Lord Jesus, we see you have served us and loved us and given everything for us. Our Father, we pray that in return we would serve you with everything we have and live for you. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.